John chapter 20. Turn with me. John chapter 20. Consider the gospel, uh, gospel truth about faith. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John writes, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Christians are known as believers, aren't they? You read your New Testament, and that is often what they are called. Christians or followers of Christ, disciples, more often than not, they're called believers. Do you remember what last week's message was on? It was on repentance. Christians are never called repenters. You ever think about that? They are never called repenters. They are called what? Believers. So does this mean that repentance isn't important? What's the motivation for this whole series? It was the fact that some deny the necessity of repentance. This doesn't mean that repentance is unessential, far from it. That's why one of the reasons I had us look into Philippians 3 this morning, Paul said in Philippians 3 verses 7 and 8, what did he consider all those things that he was trusting in, his being a Jew, his being a Pharisee, uh, keeping the law? What did he count that? He said, I have counted it not as a gain, but as a loss. I count all things for loss. I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And then in verse 13, he says, all that stuff that was behind, I am continually forgetting it. Forgetting the things which are behind. And what? Reaching forward. Looking forward to the things that are ahead. Repentance is an essential aspect of saving faith. So what is true faith that characterizes a believer in Jesus Christ? If you're following along in the back of your bulletin, we're going to look at kind of a brief overview of John's Gospel. I'm going to get more in-depth in it this afternoon to hopefully give you some training on using those little Gospel of John's that we have back there as, as good, inspired Gospel tracks. John talks about content that makes up faith, number one. He says in verse 21, or sorry, verse 31, these are written. So he's talking about the content. John's Gospel gives truth about Jesus that serves as the content of faith. What kinds of things? Well, Three main sections of John's Gospel. The first section, chapters 1 through 12 there, talks about his works that he did. Public, his public ministry. Uh, this covers about three years of Jesus' ministry. John relates seven miracles that Jesus did. Is that all the miracles that Jesus did? Did he do just seven miracles? No, you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he did a lot more. In fact, what will John say at the end of the book in chapter 21 and verse 25 about the miracles? He said, well, if I had all the books in the world, I wouldn't have enough. 
For all the sky a parchment made, and every man a scribe. The love of God could not, uh, it wouldn't be able to contain the, 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 the truth about God's love. In those first 12 chapters, you don't need to write these down because they're in your Bible, and we'll look at them tonight, this afternoon. But the first miracle that he did, he changed the water into wine. Then he healed the nobleman's son from a distance, remember? The nobleman came from a distance. The impotent man, impotent man who was unable to walk. He fed the 5,000. He walked on the water. He healed a man born blind. And then for John's gospel, the, the pinnacle miracle, serving as a sign to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, was his raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been dead four days. And from Jewish perspective, there was no hope of there being a, a resurrection then from a human standpoint. But Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. One of those favorite statements that's made is, is when, I think, I can't remember if it's Mary or Martha, um, and I still remember it in the King James when, when, when Jesus said to roll away the stone and Mary or Martha said, nay, Lord, for he stinketh. You know, it's, he's been in there rotting for, uh, for, for days now in the, the heat. The second section of John is John's teaching in chapters 13 to 17. His teaching that proves him to be the Christ, the Son of God. You not only need to know why uh, you should become a Christian, you not only need to know how to become a Christian, you must know what does it mean to be a Christian. This teaching Jesus gives in chapter 13 to 17, one night. That's pretty amazing to think about. Chapters 1 to 12 is three years of ministry. And then you have a, a huge section of Scripture. John 13 to John 17 happens in one night, the night before which he was betrayed. What does a Christian, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, the first thing he does is he, he washes the disciples' feet, showing the necessity of humble service. And then in chapter, the rest of chapter 13, he says, you must love one another, even as I have loved you. This is a new commandment that I give you. Then in chapter 14, and we'll consider all these again this afternoon, he talks about the, the Spirit's role. I must go to the Father so that I may send the Spirit. This emphasizes a genuine believer depends on the Spirit. He can't do anything apart from the Spirit's work. Chapter 15, he uses an illustration of the, the vine in the branches I grew up, maybe some of you did as well, as a little kid in Sunday school. Remember singing that little gospel tune? He is the vine end. You know, kind of go all like this. His banner over me is love. And then it wrongly takes Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon there. His banner over me is love. That's from Song of Solomon. This is John chapter 15. What's the whole point of that? A genuine believer perseveres in Christ. That's the point of, he says, abide in me. What's a real believer like? Jesus proves himself to be the Christ, the Son of God, by teaching that a genuine believer perseveres in Christ. He's not. He doesn't leave. He doesn't, he's not cast off. Then the rest of chapter 15, the beginning part of chapter 16, he talks about the believer's response and experience in the world. The world is going to hate you. 
but you will persevere. You will be faithful amid persecution. And then last, the last teaching that we have from Jesus, proving him to be the Messiah, proving him to be Christ and the Son of God, is in chapter 17. His prayer. This is really the Lord's prayer. Where we have Jesus' prayer the night before he was betrayed. And we learn from Jesus' prayer what does it mean to be a Christian? You have to depend on the Father. And you must pray as our, Father, as our Savior did. And then the third part of John's Gospel is chapter 18 and 21 where his suffering, his death, and his resurrection prove him to be the Christ, the Son of God. He suffered as prophesied of the Messiah in Isaiah 53 and died. And he rose as the Old Testament said he would. That brings us to the main part of today's message. Number two, what is the character of genuine faith? The character of genuine faith. There's a lot of different words in John's Gospel that are synonyms, different words and expressions that mean the same thing as faith. For example, in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, as many as, remember that R word? As many as receive him. That means faith. In chapter 3, verse 36, he uses the word obey, as many as obey him. And that's not works salvation. That is an essential aspect of faith that we will see and consider. In chapter 15, verse 11, abiding in him. These all give color, uh, give hue, um, different facets of what faith involves. A personal commitment, devotion, dependence, and reliance on Jesus. I list three things here. Number uh, one, two, and three. Knowledge, assent, and unreserved trust. These help us see the three aspects of true faith. Faith is the knowledge of, the assent to, the unreserved trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Scriptures. So what's involved, number one, in knowledge? Because we're considering chapter 20, verse 31, that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Number one, knowledge involves understanding the truths of the Gospel. Let your blank there for number one. Understanding the truths of the Gospel. Remember what Paul says in Romans 10, 17? Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. Why do we need to hear? So that you will, what's number one? Understand. Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance. And then he runs down a quick little thumbnail of the Gospel. It involves truth. Content that must be mentally understood. Genuine faith involves believing something. That means they have to have a right understanding of gospel truth. Faith has content. It's not just there. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith has a solid basis. True faith has a solid basis. Truths of the gospel have to be known and understood. What truths? Who is God? What's humanity's condition? 
Who is Jesus Christ? What is repentance and faith? These are truths that must be taught, conveyed, received, and understood. But remember, this is just one aspect, aspect of saving faith. Just one aspect of saving faith. Can somebody have right knowledge about God, about humanity, about Jesus, and yet not be saved? Sure can. Let me give you two examples. John chapter 3, verse 2. John chapter 3, verse 2. Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. But yet, what did Jesus then say to Nicodemus? You must be born again. Implication, he was lost. He was dead in his sins, but he had right knowledge. A second example that I'm going to use another time is James chapter 2, verse 19. In James 2, verse 19, James says to his readers, you believe that God is one? Great, you're doing well. Who else believes? The demons believe. Think about this, Christian. Think about this. If you're here this morning and you are not saved and you are not a believer, demons have correct knowledge about the triune God. They have correct knowledge about the triune God. But just having right beliefs is not enough. There must be number two. There must be assent. What's this mean? What does this involve? Your blank here is affirm, A-F-F-I-R-M. You must affirm the truths of the gospel. And let me be clear, don't tell an unbeliever, you need to affirm the truths of the gospel. I'm not speaking this as gospel message to unbelievers, okay? What would I say to an unbeliever? You need to believe in Christ. You need to believe it with all your what? Heart. That's what this is talking about. Assent and affirm the truths of the gospel. That means you accept it. You welcome it with open arms. You agree with it. You strongly believe. I affirm. I affirm. You're persuaded of its truthfulness. You could write down as an example in a, 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 a passage that teaches this. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's not merely a head knowledge. It is a heart knowledge. I have this deep-seated assurance and conviction that I, that He, that who He is, and I am a sinner. This is conviction understood with the mind and welcomed and accepted in the heart. It is a wholehearted yes! I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Only Jesus can save me. There has to be a connection between, number one, the truth, understanding it. Number two, the assent, the affirmation, the welcoming in the heart to one's own personal needs. Wholehearted agreement with the facts of the gospel. They're welcomed. So, these are two necessary aspects of faith. Are they enough? Is it enough to just have a head knowledge 
and a heart knowledge about God, sin, Jesus Christ, and repentance and faith. No, it is not. Illustration again, James chapter 2, verse 19, that I quoted earlier. The demons not only believe, but guess what? They have a heart response to this. It affects their emotions. What do they do? They tremble. They tremble. They know who the triune God is. They were present on one of those first days of creation. Think about that. They were not made as the last step of creation. They were made early in the creation week. They saw God make things by simply what? Speaking it. They saw God's power before they fell into sin, led astray by Satan. They saw God's absolute holiness and perfection. They know, they know from an experienced perspective what sin is because they are thoroughly sinful. They know God's judgment and they know they will be judged. They know what awaits them in the lake of fire. They see it. They're aware of it. They know that is their end. And they tremble. But are they saved? Do they love the Lord God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind? They have this right knowledge. They have this heart knowledge. But yet, they will not bow the knee to God. They will not serve him gladly and willingly. What is required is the third aspect of saving faith. Unreserved trust. Unreserved trust. This means to appropriate. A-P-P-R-O-P-R-I-A-T-E. Appropriate the truths of the gospel. Again, don't tell an unbeliever, dear friend, Thou must appropriate the truths of the gospel. Don't say that. We're learning here. Okay? Appropriate means to take possession of. To take possession of. Many of you know that a couple in our church has been helping their daughter and son-in-law move from North Carolina up to Michigan. Right now, that couple doesn't have a home. They're homeless. It reminds me of, well, back in 2005. When we moved from Michigan, we had sold our house. We're moving out here. On the way out, we did not know yet we were going to live. We knew somebody's going to find us a place. But that three-hour drive, Trish and I are like, Lord, we don't want to sleep in this moving truck tonight. We had 20 inches of snow that first Saturday in April. A couple of you remember because a couple of you helped us move in that snowstorm. When we finally got the house that we live in right now, in May of 2005, you sign the 800 pages involved in signing a mortgage, you know. You finally get it. You get the keys, and then we, what's that A word? Appropriated our house. We walked in and we said, this is our house. Mentally knowing who owns most of it, the bank, but it's our house. 
We're, we've owned a, a bit more of it now, thankfully. But it is our house. Appropriate means to take possession. It involves personally taking it. Making it your own. Remember John 1.12? To those who receive, take Him. It's unreserved trust. Full, exclusive confidence in Christ. That's why I often say I define faith as receiving and resting on Jesus Christ. But we're digging deeper this morning. It involves the knowledge of, assent to, and unreserved trust in Jesus Christ. Genuine saving faith understands the truth, affirms it, and surrenders to it. No demon will surrender to Christ. Genuine saving faith relies entirely and exclusively on Christ to be saved. This, I think, is the most characteristic aspect of faith. If you fall short of it in this aspect, you are not saved. I say, that's quite a statement, Pastor Greenfield. Are you saying that if someone has right head knowledge, and has right heart knowledge, but that's all, that they're not saved? I can't know the heart, can I? And so I would have to say, from God's perspective, yes. Because unless there is a bending of the knee, a whole soul reliance, a love with the whole being that's seen in the heart, the head, the heart, the mind, the strength, there is not salvation there is not salvation. Well, we need scripture, Pastor. I'll point to James 2.19. The demons believe and they tremble, but they do not submit. They are eternally rebels against God. Unreserved trust in Christ, appropriate salvation. We see this from different phrases in John's Gospel. In John 7.38, he says, faith in Christ. In John 1.12, as I mentioned, he receives Christ. In John 4.14, he drinks Christ. In John 6.53, he eats Christ. Remember, what did the, how, how did the Jews respond to that one? Unless you eat me? And the Jews kind of like, wait a minute. What are you talking about here? He wasn't talking, John says this, right in the gospel there. He wasn't talking about actually eating his his actual body and drinking his actual blood. It's a figure of speech to talk about whole being reliance, welcoming, accepting. John 6.35, come to Christ. Come to Christ. That means when you come to Christ, guess what happens when you come to Christ? You leave where you were and you go to where Christ is. What's that in one word? That starts with an R. That's repentance. That's why repentance is an essential aspect of saving faith. Come to Christ means leaving and going to where He is. And then the word obey. John chapter 3 and verse 36. Obey is a synonym for saving faith. The opposite of obedience is unbelief. Listen to John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
This is what God says. You believe in the Son, you have eternal life. And then we're expecting him to say, but he who does not believe. We're expecting that, aren't we? But he doesn't say that. He says, he who believes has eternal life, and he who does not obey does not have eternal life. Are there two different bases, two different foundations, two different ways of getting saved? I've actually heard some say people in the Old Testament were saved by their works. But now it's salvation by faith. No. True faith is seen in obedience. That's James 2. A faith that saves is a faith that obeys. It is a faith that works. The demons in James 2.19, they have, they have a right understanding. They affirm it in all their being, the truthfulness of it, but they will never surrender their will. They will never surrender their will to the Lord or express exclusive reliance on Him. Number three, the object of faith. Look again at John chapter 20 and verse 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the object. So the key to faith is content. And faith has an orthodox understanding of who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? What has he done? What he does shows who he is. Because um, um, only because of who he is, could he have done those things? Could he have done those miracles? Could he have lived that perfect life? Could he have died as a substitute? Could he have risen from the dead? Jesus of Nazareth. That means he's a genuine human being. Jesus the Christ. That means he's the promised Savior and King. Stop a minute. I want to encourage you, Christian, when you're reading your New Testament and you read about Jesus Christ, and you pray Jesus Christ, and you say Jesus Christ, it's kind of like a first name and last name to us, isn't it? John Smith. Christ is not his last name. It is a name. It's a title as well. It means he's the Messiah. And wrapped up in that little, packed into that one word, Christ or Messiah, is all the Old Testament truth about the promised King of Israel. All the way back to Genesis 3.15. Who crashed Satan's head. Who will rule Israel. Who will die and save Israel from their sins. All that truth is wrapped up. So next time you're reading your New Testament and you see Jesus Christ, you need to think that way. I encourage you to read the book of Acts thinking that. That's how the apostles thought of it. When they preached Jesus as the Christ, that's exactly what they're talking about. And that means he is the object of your faith. He fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. He fits the bill. There's a third aspect, his humanity. The fact that he's the Christ. It says here he's the Son of God. Son of God. This is a Hebrew expression. There's another similar Hebrew expression uh, in some of our English translations in the Old Testament. It talks about a Son of Belial. Now it doesn't mean his dad was Belial. Okay, I'm the son of Roger. 
literal son of Roger. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the characteristics of. In that sense, I am a son of Roger Greenfield. It is scary. Ask my son Andy. He has said to me uh, on a couple times, I was doing something and I thought, that's exactly how dad done it. Oh man, I'm turning into my dad. It happens, doesn't it? When you're around somebody for so often, your parents, you start to think and talk like them. No, no, you can't, you can't avoid it. It just happens. Jesus is the son of God. This is a title. This is a name and is a Hebrew expression talking about he has all the characteristics and all the qualities that make God, God. He is God incarnate. He must be the one known, the one loved, and the one obeyed. Knowledge, assent, and unreserved trust. This Jesus, nothing less, nothing less will do. What is the promise that you have? What's the promise we have from John 20, verse 31? If there's genuine faith in Christ on the basis of the Scriptures, look at the end of verse 31. Believing you may have life. That's the result, number four. Life in His name. His name is talking about everything about Him. Who He is and what He's like. Give you two examples. Two names from American history. You had better know these. The first one. George Washington. What's popping in most everybody's minds right now? I'm going to cut a little slack for two little girls sitting in the back who may not have heard yet about George Washington. They may have heard the name, but George Washington, who's he? He's essential to the founding of our nation. He's esteemed. He's appreciated, isn't he? Let me give you another name that I think most of us know about. Benedict Arnold. The opposite of George Washington. The opposite. A traitor who, who, who did everything he could to foil the American Revolutionary War. Life is found only in Jesus' name. That means all knowledge, assent, and affirmation and love in him. For anyone to have this life, he must believe absolutely, completely, entirely, submissively in what the Scripture says about Jesus. What does Jesus say about him? Well, Jesus himself said in chapter 11, verse 30, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He said in John 5, 26, He who believes in me has life. He said in John 5.21 that He gives life to whom He wishes. He as life gives life to those who know who He is. His name. Who rely on Him. Who come to Him. And that life, John 3.16, lasts how long? Eternal. It is a present possession, not merely a future reward. John chapter 5, verse 24. He who believes in me has, not will have eternal life. Is that true? Yeah. 
but it's a present possession right now. The mortgage isn't being paid on eternal life. It was paid on Calvary. That's why I think one of the most important verses in John's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 3, where Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And when God, when Jesus says knowing the Lord, it's not a head knowledge, is it? It's a everything. Everyone here either has life or doesn't have life. This is true of everyone right now, whether you're 8 or 80. You either have life or you don't have life. So the question is, who are you depending on for life? Not what are you depending on for life, but who are you depending on for life? You might say, well, unbelievers can depend on work, so they're depending on a what. No, they're not. They're depending on a who. A whom, if you want the English grammar correct. You say, well, how is that a who? Saving faith looks to, rests on, and loves who? And depends on who for salvation, saving faith. Jesus. What's the only other option? Me. The works that I do. I am depending on the works that I am doing. That's the only other option. Works salvation is, I trust in myself salvation. Works salvation is, I trust in my work salvation. That's not faith salvation. Faith salvation is, I trust in Christ salvation. Faith is, I trust in Christ's work salvation. Do you see the difference? There is only one true religion. The, Christians, the, the, the Christian faith and the Christian scriptures. Everything else, it might fly under the banner of Christianity, but as soon as it adds to Jesus' work, they might have right knowledge about God, Jesus Christ and sin. They might use the word faith and repentance. They might call themselves a church. But if they say at all, yeah, we have to have head knowledge and love for God, Jesus Christ, and we must work, they just left saving faith. It is then I trust that I will do enough. I hope that I will do enough. Christian, you must know what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be His disciple. Everyone here, whether 8 or 80, who, whom do you believe? Who are you relying on? Now one last point. For my brothers and sisters, Christians who are present here, can our faith be weak? Yeah. Does our faith need strengthening? Sure does. How can your faith be strengthened? Think back to these three aspects of faith. What's the very first essential aspect of faith? What was number one? Knowledge. Where do you get that knowledge? The Scriptures. 
That's where you need to go then. If you're weak, if you're going back and forth, if you're being tossed here and there, if you're unsettled and in turmoil, you must get in God's Word. You don't need less of God's Word. You need more of God's Word. The promises of God. What was the second aspect of it? Assent. You affirm it. This is a hard issue. I think this is especially where prayer must come in. Hear me correctly, because I don't want to be a, 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 I don't want to be um, accused of heresy. Are you listening now? Okay. I don't want to be accused of heresy. Must we pray that unbelievers will understand the gospel truths? Yes. What does it involve? That unbeliever understanding subject, verb, and object. Human language. That's how we communicate. That is how God has communicated truth to us. When it comes to the heart, that's especially where we must pray. That's particularly where we must be praying. Think of Lydia, not this Lydia, but Lydia and Philippi in chapter Acts 16, 14. Paul spoke truth. She listened. And then what does it say? God opened her heart to do what? To receive with her heart. That's what you must do, Christian, when you have weak faith. Lord, help my unbelief. And then there must be that third aspect of faith, which is unreserved trust. And the word that I use there, that Jesus used, is that old word, obey. You learn what it says. You receive it and accept it. You, you, you say it's true in your heart. you got to obey it. You must obey it. Cast all your cares on Him. Why? What's the basis? What's the truth? He cares for you. That's number one. That's the knowledge. He cares for you. He cares for you. Is that a truth? Is that a promise? Do you have it? Do you know that in your head? You can know that in your head and be an unbeliever, can't you? It must be in our heart, but is that enough? He cares for you, and so what must be the response of true faith? Obey. Cast your cares on you. But we don't want to. We want to do what? We want to hang on to it. We want to say, you do your part, God, and I'll do my part. No. Cast all your cares on Him. Based on what truth? He cares for you. How can you grow in your faith when you're tossed here and there? Get in the Word of God. Pray and ask the Lord to help you grasp it, to see its significance for your life, and then just Plain old, spirit-dependent obedience. Lord, help me to obey. That's the Christian life. I wish the Christian life was just a straight line. You know, the moment you get saved and... Hey, that'd be great, wouldn't it? But it's not that way, is it? What's the Christian life? It's grow a little and then sin. <laughs> Disobey. And a true believer is going to do what? Confess his sin, turn from that, and go forward. True faith grows, it bears fruit. That's Matthew 13, parable of the sower and the soils.
We must have true faith, and we must grow in that faith.